We are in Acts chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 12 through 42 this morning. If you would all please stand. For the reading of God's word, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 5, uh, beginning verse 12 down through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Acts 5, beginning verse 12, says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. <laughs> then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
Father, we ask that you would uh, add your blessing to the reading of your word this morning. We commit our time to you together, uh, to you. We pray that you would just teach us, instruct us, help us to be more like you, and uh, help us to recommit ourselves to Christ, to his kingdom, and to the advancement of his reign on earth. I pray that each one of us would be stirred and, and challenged by the text that we have before us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in Acts chapter 5 in our series through the book of Acts. This morning we're going to finish up the chapter looking at verses 12 through 42. And this section records really the first, uh, you could say, real persecution that the church goes through. Uh, they had been arrested already and warned, uh, threatened to stop preaching about Jesus in a couple of chapters prior. Uh, but here is where they really get their first bit of true suffering. The text begins in verse 12 with some summary statements about the life of the church. We looked at these briefly last time, but verse 12 says, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Uh, that would be a section of the temple grounds there. Uh, as we said before, the apostles performed miracles as a validation of their apostleship, uh, and as a, or an authentication of their apostleship and, and a, a validation of their, their message, that what they were saying was true. Uh, Paul refers to these signs and wonders as the signs of an apostle. It was a way that God bore witness to these men as official spokesmen of Jesus. And so when you saw Peter healing people or casting out demons or doing some sort of miraculous thing, uh, people would know that this was uh, a true apostle, somebody that they should listen to. Uh, we know from the writings of the apostles that there were some in the early church who were impostors. Uh, they claimed to have this same apostolic authority over the churches, but they, they were not true apostles. And so the miracles, the signs and wonders was God's way of giving credibility to the true apostles, the ones that he had chosen and commissioned. And so nowadays, it's really easy for us today to look and see who's a true teacher uh, of God's word and who isn't. You just look at scripture, but they didn't have the New Testament. Uh, the apostles that gave us our New Testament uh, hadn't written these books down yet. And so uh, at this point in time in, in the book of Acts, when the New Testament had not been written down for the church, the apostles played a very important role. Uh, if you wanted to know about the Trinity, if you wanted to know about Jesus and uh, the atonement and these sort of doctrines that aren't really flushed out in the Old Testament, the apostles would be the ones uh, to teach that. And so they were the leaders of the early church, the main teachers. They set the doctrine of the church, and they wrote those down in what we have today in the New Testament. So they're doing these signs and wonders. This, of course, is drawing crowds of people. Uh, if we saw somebody today that was doing these sorts of things out in the street, you know, healing uh, anybody that came by and, and mass healings and things, of course, that would draw a crowd uh, very quickly. And so it says there in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So in the midst of these signs and wonders, there's also the preaching of the gospel and people are coming to Christ. Verse 15, so they, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Uh, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So again, this is a very, uh, all of Jerusalem knew what was going on here. There was, this was a big commotion, uh, and it was even drawing in people from surrounding towns. So the church is growing. People are being converted. Miracles are happening all over the place. There's the mention here of Peter's shadow healing people as he's just walking by them. Uh, this is sort of reminiscent of, in, in the Gospels, the lady who uh, touched the edge of Jesus' robe and was healed. 
In the case of these apostles, though, as Peter had made clear, he had no power in and of himself. So unlike Jesus, Peter and the apostles were not healing because of who they were. It was Jesus who was healing the people through his chosen apostles. Peter made that very clear back in chapter 3. This was a demonstration then of the power of Christ through his chosen apostles. You may remember back in Acts chapter 1, at the very beginning of the book of, the book of Acts, Luke writes that his previous book, the Gospel of Luke, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, now here in Acts is the continuation of the work of Christ uh, through his church and, and particularly through his apostles. And so with this backdrop of the church growing and thriving, crowds of people coming to see these miracles and hear the gospel, verse 17 says, The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So here we are again. Uh, Peter and John were arrested a couple of chapters before after they healed a lame man and preached to the crowds of people there uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Remember, they were arrested primarily because they were teaching on the temple grounds. Uh, this was the Sadducees' turf. You know, the, the high priest and the Sadducees, they were in charge of the temple. And so the, the apostles coming and preaching the name of Jesus, preaching that he's been raised from the dead, uh, that's doing a few things that frustrated them. First of all, it would be like somebody coming up in our church today, uh, standing up here on the platform and teaching, you know, some random person that's, that's not even a part of our church. It'd be like, what are you doing? Uh, this is sort of what's going on here. They're, they're in the temple and the high priest and Sadducees turf, and they're teaching. Uh, not only that, but they're contradicting the doctrine of the Sadducees and high priests. You remember, the Sadducees do not believe in any sort of resurrection. Uh, they think when you die, that's it. That's the end of it. Uh, and so they're preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then thirdly, they're also frustrated because they're teaching about Jesus, the one who they had condemned to die. And so they're, they're promoting this man that, that the religious leaders had rejected and saying, you guys messed up here. Uh, you killed the Messiah that God had sent. And so they had been arrested for this in the past. They stood trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem, sort of like the Supreme Court uh, of the Jews. And those leaders of the Sanhedrin had let them go on the condition that they were to stop preaching about Jesus. Uh, of course, Peter and John on that occasion told them, we're not going to stop preaching about Jesus. Uh, but the Jewish leaders, they threatened them, they told them, don't do this, and then they released them. And so this time, all of the apostles here in chapter 5 end up getting arrested. Uh, they clearly violated the orders that they had been given. Here they are again on the temple grounds, preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so they're put in prison, awaiting trial the next morning, just like before. Except this time, verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, normally, if you're going to escape from prison, you would go into hiding for some time. Uh, try to stay under the radar for a little while. But the angel tells them instead, go right back to the temple, stand up and continue preaching. So verse 21 says, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They picked right up where they were the day before. Now the high priest came and those who were with him and called together the council. So the Sanhedrin has been gathered, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. Uh, they have no clue that the apostles are not in prison anymore. And so they, they gather the Sanhedrin, they call for them to be brought out to stand trial. Verse 22, when the officers came, they did, not find, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. The prison is still locked up tight. The guards are still standing there on duty, but nobody's in the cell. <clears throat> it's like the angel just sort of teleported them right out without anybody knowing. Verse 24, now the <clears throat> the captain of the temple, so this would be like the, the security of the temple, the, um, how should we say, sort of the police that were in charge of, of keeping order there. Uh, the, the, the captain of the temple, the chief priest, they heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Uh, this must be really frustrating. They just arrested them for doing this, and somehow they got out, and they're right back to doing it again. Verse 26, the captain uh, with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. As we saw previously, uh, the people in Jerusalem held them in high esteem. They knew these were true prophets of God, uh, performing miracles and doing all these sorts of things. So if they were to arrest them uh, with crowds of people around, that would cause an uproar. Uh, presumably, in the, uh, previously here, in the, earlier in the chapter when they were arrested, they probably found a way to do it uh, when there weren't very many people around. Uh, here, though, there's crowds of people listening to them teach, and so they say, we don't want to cause any trouble. And so they go, they bring them, but not by force. Uh, interestingly, of course, there's no resistance. The disciples uh, willingly go with them. And so verse 27 says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. So here they are on trial for the second time. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, speaking of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the high priest has two issues with the apostles here. First of all, they're still teaching about Jesus being raised from the dead, which they had been commanded not to do. They had been ordered to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And then also, they were indicting the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem for killing Jesus. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're saying that we're guilty for killing the innocent Jesus. Now, to the first issue, yes, it's true. They were disobeying the direct orders of the Jewish leaders, but then Peter had told them that they were, weren't going to obey them. Uh, so this shouldn't have been much of a shock. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, responding to this, uh, the high priest's words. Uh, Peter, probably speaking on behalf of the apostles, he says, we must obey God rather than man. Uh, now, I, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this. There's a lot that we could say, but let me just read this from John Stott commenting on this passage. Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and, generally speaking, to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands, speaking of God, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. So all that to say, generally speaking, Christians should be known as law-abiding citizens. Uh, generally speaking, we are to submit to our government, uh, submit to the leaders that God has established over us. However, there are exceptions to that. Uh, the, the authority of, of government leaders is not absolute. The only one with absolute authority is God. And so if the, if the government ever commands us to do something that God says not to do, or commands us not to do something that God says to do, we are to disobey. A great example of that in the Old Testament, of course, is Daniel. Uh, you think of the times when he gets in trouble. Uh, the, the king Nebuchadnezzar tells him, bow down and worship this idol. Uh, that's something God says we can't do, and so they don't do it. Uh, you think also of, of when they're uh, commanded, Daniel's commanded by the decree of Darius to stop praying. 
nobody's allowed to pray to anyone except the king. And Daniel says, I, I can't do that. And he just continues praying. And so uh, good examples all throughout Scripture of, at times, civil disobedience being the duty of Christians, if it is that they're telling us to do something that violates God's command. And so Peter says very clearly, we must obey God rather than man. So it's not, we're not trying to be rebellious uh, to the authority that you have. However, God has given us instructions here, and we must obey. God had sent them into the world with a message of forgiveness in Jesus. They had to continue preaching that regardless of what these leaders say. Peter continues in verse 30, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Well, no wonder. Uh, Peter just preached the gospel to those commanding him to stop preaching the gospel. I want to go back through these verses, though, because Peter gives us here a great summary of the message of Christianity. Beginning of verse 30, he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. First, notice that Peter refers to the God of our fathers, meaning Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He's speaking here to Jews. And so it's important to understand that Christians worship the God of the Jews. The New Testament is the fulfillment and continuation of the Old Testament. Jesus is what the Old Testament was pointing to. And so Peter says that Jesus has been raised again. Uh, notice again, you guys killed him, but God raised him. Always Peter is pitting these leaders against the God that they claim to represent. And so the gospel begins by understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then in verse 31, we get to the ascension of Jesus. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. God has given him the position or the title of Archegon and Sodera. The ESV translates that as leader and savior. Uh, the first of those could be translated ruler or king. And so Jesus is the one who provides salvation. He's the savior and he's the leader or ruler of those that he saves. He's been exalted to this position of authority over his kingdom. And his work of redeeming man is described at the end of the verse there as giving repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now again, to a Jewish audience here, Peter says that Jesus gives this to Israel, but we know that's just the start. Uh, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to see Acts 1.8 being fulfilled, that they were to be witnesses starting in Jerusalem, but then eventually this offer of salvation and forgiveness would be brought to all nations of the world. Repentance and forgiveness of sins shows us that the work of Jesus is spiritual. Uh, the Messiah had not come to overthrow Rome like the Jews thought. Rather, he died on the cross as the sin-bearer and rose victorious to be the Lord and Savior of all who repent. Any who will turn from their sins to Jesus can have their sins forgiven and their lives transformed. And so this is really the gospel in a nutshell. Peter wraps up with these words in verse 32. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So these apostles are eyewitnesses of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. They were there. They saw him alive from the dead. They saw him ascend up to the Father's right hand. And not only do they testify of Jesus, but so does the Holy Spirit. 
the one who's causing all of these miraculous healings and signs and wonders. That's evidence that the Spirit is uh, pointing to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. He's say, he, he's uh, Through these miracles, signs, and wonders, he's testifying that this message is true. And so the Spirit has been given by God the Father to those who obey him. And I think the him being referred to there in verse 32 is the same him as in verse 31, namely Jesus. God raised him. God gave him the position of ruler. God has exalted him to his right hand, and God gives the Spirit to all who repent and obey him. Again, that's Christianity summarized in just a few verses there. Being a Christian means you've turned from your sins, you've repented, you've been forgiven by God, you've submitted to Jesus as ruler, and you obey him now, the Spirit indwelling your life of obedience. By the way, just notice there the Trinitarian language all throughout this. God the Father exalted his son, Jesus, to his right hand. He's given Jesus the name above every name so that uh, you know, every knee will bow in submission to Christ and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And God the Father then gives the Spirit to his people to testify of Christ. The church very clearly, even at this early stage, believed in a triune God. One God in three distinct persons. And so Peter preaches the gospel to these Jewish leaders, calls them to repent of their sin in killing Jesus and submit their lives to his rule. And verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They were furious. Uh, they had ordered them to stop preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Peter responds by preaching to them that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They were mad at the apostles for indicting them, for pinning the death of Jesus on them. And so Peter responds by doing exactly that. You guys killed him, but God raised him. They had tried threatening the apostles and ordering them to stop, and they ignored their orders. They tried imprisoning them, and somehow they escaped and ended up right back at the temple preaching again. And so it seems like the only thing we can do to shut these guys up is to kill them. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to the men uh, to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people. That's kind of an understatement. Uh, Gamaliel is the most revered teacher in Judaism at this time, and I'm not just getting that from the New Testament. Uh, secular sources would uh, confirm this. We know a lot about Gamaliel from the historical writings of this time period. He's the grandson of Hillel, the most famous Jewish rabbi ever. Uh, the Talmud gives Gamaliel the title of master teacher. Uh, incidentally, Saul of Tarsus, who later is known as Paul, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel is a sort of guy who everybody gets quiet when he has something to say. He held a lot of authority here at the council. And so he stands up, he orders the apostles to be put outside for a minute. He wants to talk to the other members of the council who are furious uh, they want to kill these men. And so verse 35, he says to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, <clears throat> claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, he gives two kind of illustrations from the, the, the past few years. Uh, these would both probably be within their lifetime, kind of recent memory. 
Uh, we don't know anything about this guy named Thutis. Apparently, he was trying to launch some sort of probably military coup against Rome. He ended up with 400 followers, and then he was killed, and all of his followers scattered, and that was the end of it. Uh, then Gamaliel reminds them of Judas. We do know about him. Uh, in AD 6, uh, during the reign of Quirinius, uh, roughly 25 years before uh, here, at, here in Acts 5, there's a Jew named Judas who started the Zealot Movement. Uh, he taught that it was treason for the Jews, the people of God, to pay taxes to the pagan Romans. And so as you might imagine, this became a very popular notion. Uh, he had quite a following for a while. But that revolt was very quickly crushed by Rome, and then Judas died, and all of his followers were scattered, and that was the end of it. And so Gamaliel is looking back at history, recent history in their lifetime, seeing these movements that have come and gone in the past. And so he says in verse 38, So in the present case, in the case of Jesus and these apostles, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So he says, let's just leave them be and let's see how this plays out. If it's just a man-made movement, it's going to die out in time. But if it is of God, then nothing can stop it. And by the way, the fact that we're here 2,000 years later and Christianity has spread all over the globe proves that what Gamaliel says here is true. Many people have tried to stop Christianity. Uh, even in the early years of the Roman Empire, they killed Christians, they burned their Bibles, they tried to stamp out any following that Jesus had. For centuries, this type of intense persecution went on. But all of these efforts failed. Because as Gamaliel says here, when you fight against God, you lose. And so in contrast to these two illustrations, unlike Thutis and Judas, who died and their followers scattered, when Jesus died and rose again, his movement was just getting started. And rather than dissipate quickly, it, it was multiplying, even here in Acts chapter 5. So the Sanhedrin decides that we're going to take Gamaliel's advice. We're going to sit back, kind of just let this play out, see what happens. Verse 40, they called the apostles in and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Now, don't just read over that part quickly. I want us to think about this. They called the apostles in. They ordered them again to stop speaking about Jesus, and then it says they beat them. Flogging was a common punishment in those days. It's probably more severe uh, than you would think. The person's hand would be, hands would be strapped above their head, and they would be whipped 39 times. It was very intense. So far, God had made it pretty easy for these Christians. They had been arrested once before, but all they got was a warning, and they were free to go. Then they were arrested, they were put in prison, and God sent an angel that brought them out of prison and uh, let them go free. And now, as they're being led away to be beaten, I wonder if they're thinking, okay, God, get us out of this one. I wonder how he's going to do it this time. Where, where's the angel, God? But God didn't do anything. They were beaten until they were bruised and bleeding. And here's the amazing part. Rather than being disillusioned with God, they rejoiced. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Is your allegiance to Jesus that strong? They left rejoicing. Uh, that must have had an incredible impact on the people who saw this take place. I wonder if as they were being beaten, they remembered the words of Jesus back in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you 
when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And that's exactly what they did. They rejoiced that they were suffering for the sake of Jesus. They had the mindset of the Apostle Paul toward the end of his ministry. In Acts chapter 20, he says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the, from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone, <clears throat> gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul knows he's headed for imprisonment and eventually death. And he says, I don't count my life precious to myself. If I can be faithful to the ministry that the Lord Jesus has given me, if I can testify to the gospel of Christ, then I'll be satisfied with that. Are you so committed to the advancement of his kingdom that you'd be willing to have that mindset? Would you be willing to lose your life in order to find it, as Jesus said? Would you suffer hardship for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? Really, the question comes down to how high our commitment to the Lord is, how serious we are about spreading the gospel to the lost. Jesus had said in Luke chapter 21, Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, speaking to his disciples. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. The disciples knew when they signed up to follow Christ that it would cost them. Jesus made it clear that they would be persecuted. Some of them would even be killed. But Jesus says, this is how we win. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Every time throughout the history of the church when there's been intense persecution, Christianity has grown and spread further. As one Christian named Tertullian wrote, uh, to the rulers of, of the Roman Empire around AD 50, he says, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. God used their testimony of steadfast preaching of the gospel, even in the midst of persecution, as the growth, uh, the, uh, the impetus for the growth of the church. Basically, people would see their preaching uh, even in the face of this opposition, and they would be convinced, wow, these guys really believe what they're saying. I told you before, throughout the Middle Ages, when the Catholic Church was uh, martyring many Christians, faithful preachers of the gospel, uh, they would be burned at the stake. That was the common way that they would be killed, especially under Bloody Mary. <clears throat> and these Christians would be preaching literally while they were being burned, uh, until eventually they started strangling them while burning them just to get them to shut up. Because the crowds of people that saw this witness uh, to the gospel, they, they were just, it was a powerful uh, message that God was using them to send. These apostles had committed their lives to the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. This was their mission. So rather than quit after experiencing persecution, verse 42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease 
teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Every day, publicly in the temple and house to house throughout Jerusalem, they just kept on preaching the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who died and rose again to save sinners. Now, in light of a text like this, we have it pretty easy in America, don't we? None of us will be beaten if we spread the gospel. We could go house to house here, and the worst we're likely to experience is someone cursing us out or slamming a door in our face. And so if these Christians in the first church here in Jerusalem could continue to reach out into their community with the message of Jesus, despite the warnings, the orders, and now the beatings that they've been given, if they could continue preaching the gospel, even with all of that opposition, how much more ought we to be shining the light of the gospel in our context? And so as we close, I want to say just a few words to us as a church. Uh, The last couple of years here, we've really been focusing on doctrinal clarity. Uh, Teaching through the Gospel of Luke, I hope, has helped us to clarify some aspects of our theology, in particular the gospel. I think Luke is one of the best books in the New Testament to look to for teaching on what we must do to be forgiven of our sins, uh, the nature of true conversion to Christ. And now I'd like to see our church improve in our evangelistic efforts. It's easy for us to come to church and learn and grow ourselves, which is all great, but meanwhile, we forget about the mission that Jesus gave us to go out and reach the world. I'd like to see our church hit the streets and go house to house just like this early church did. Uh, My wife is going to be taking some pictures here the next couple of weeks so we can get some uh, door hangers and things printed up that we can begin passing out for this very purpose. We don't want to be a church that is just preaching the Bible here. We want to reach out and engage our community with the gospel. And so stay tuned over the next few weeks and months here. We're going to start handing these out. In fact, there's some uh, kind of a a prototype on the back table there uh, that we've been working on, some invitations and things that you can give to people. And I'd like for you just to distribute these to whoever you'd like, friends, family, neighbors. Uh, Maybe we as a church will go out every once in a while and knock doors ourselves right here in this community, just invite people to church, doing all that we can to help people find the salvation in Jesus. That kind of evangelistic zeal was all over this early church, as you can see right here. They were passionate about getting the gospel of Jesus to people. It didn't matter what obstacles were in their path, they were going to keep preaching. Uh, Everyone in town was going to hear about Jesus. I love what the high priest said back in verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I'd like for us to fill Miller with this teaching. I'd love for everyone who lives within a few mile radius of here to know there's a church over on Lake Street with committed followers of Jesus where the Bible is taught and the gospel is proclaimed where you can have forgiveness and transformation through Jesus. And I believe that as our, as our church is faithful in our evangelism, just like these early uh, Christians, the Lord will add to his church. Let's pray.